Hello everyone, this conversation is with Alice Hughes, who is a professor and a researcher at XTBG in China. Um, her work is focused on understanding patterns of uh, biodiversity and drivers of biodiversity change with, with a major focus on uh, different conservation approaches. In this uh, session, in this discussion, we talk about evolution, what are the different aspects of it, um, what are the arguments against evolution, what are the proofs uh, for evolution, and uh, why it is important to study it. Um, at the end, we also discuss uh, why people still don't understand evolution and uh, what are the best ways to approach it. I hope you enjoy the conversation. All right, so um, uh, maybe um, Alice, you can you can start describing uh, with your work first. That's um, what you work on and uh, how it is important in in terms of understanding evolution. So basically, I am a biodiversity scientist. My work focuses on understanding patterns of biodiversity and drivers of biodiversity change. Now, in the context of evolution, of course, it's uh, critically important because if species aren't adapted to an area, if we don't understand how they are adapted and evolved to a certain set of conditions, we don't know, A, what we need in order to conserve them, and B, how they're likely to react to different types of change. We also, if we don't understand the context of evolution, if we don't understand the evolutionary diversity of different populations, if we're developing a management plan and we fail to account for that, we may be losing a huge amount of genetic diversity and that would hamper the ability of an organism to uh, adapt to future changes. A lot of my work also focuses on bats, which are a fantastic group of animals. For those who don't know much about bats, they're actually the second biggest mammal group with over 1,400 known species. And bats are a fantastic example of very highly sophisticated evolution because being a bat is really tough. Um, their basal metabolism will accelerate up to around 14 to 16 times what they are when they're resting, when they're moving. And anything that requires that much energy in most animals would basically destroy us because it requires so much energy. It produces so many oxygen radicals. And so we're starting to realize that in order to live this high speed, high energy lifestyle, bats have evolved a whole load of other traits, which give them almost superpowers. So whereas a five gram mouse might live two years, a five gram bat might live 40 years. So the consequence of these adaptations to this high pressure lifestyle has actually also meant that they live much longer. Not only do they live much longer, but they remain healthy. And this prolonged health span is something that scientists are just starting to understand. But it's the consequence of evolutionary pressure, because if they didn't have those traits that allowed them to survive, then they simply would not be able to withstand the pressures that daily life inflicts on them. And it also means they have a whole suite of other adaptations that make them super good at survival, whereas we as humans are pretty pathetic. Yeah, that's that's pretty impressive. And uh, I think uh, for all the anthropocentric people, this, this can be an example, then why we should look uh, on other species. And uh, when we when we say other species means it's it's a huge diversity which is out there and we can we we, we have so many examples where we can see that uh, how well the other species 
are adapted to their environment where we can't. And we are still trying to find out solutions that how we can work on longevity or, you know, to cure certain diseases, etc. Actually, the U.S. Army is one of the major sources of funding in the U.S. for bats for two reasons. One of those is radar, echolocation, because bats have super sophisticated echolocation. And that is useful in terms of any form of deep sea exploration or the other uses of radar. And the other is because of their resistance to diseases and the fact we know that they are reservoir hosts. And both of those are the product of evolution to a unique set of circumstances. And these special adaptations have allowed bats to fill this empty niche. Everyone realizes how diverse birds are. There's around 11,000 species, but very few of them are good at being active during the night. So bats have evolved to fill the niche that birds fill during the day, during the night. And that means that they have a predator release because there are not many predators at night, but it also means they have a much more stable thermal environment, which is good when you generate a lot of heat because of course flying generates a huge amount of heat. Yeah, that's, that's certainly amazing. And um, of course, now since we are talking about other species, um, other than humans at least, uh, then we can talk about a process which gives us this diversity uh, in, in the life, uh, which is evolution, and how that sort of selection pressure works um, on evolution, which is what we call evolution by natural selection. Uh, so what are these terms? Well, what, what do we understand by evolution and evolution by natural selection? So evolution by natural selection basically means the survival of the fittest, the term first coined by um, Darwin over a hundred years ago. Basically, if you have children and one of them is always the first to the table and always gets the most food, and so they grow the tallest, those traits that have enabled them to access resources means that they may grow into a bigger adult, have more children and pass on their genes more. So any trait which allows us to take advantage of conditions around us and is a heritable trait, so if they got to the table fastest because their legs were longer or because actually they were more cunning, so they were good at distracting their sibling, those may be examples of heritable traits. And if it means that they can access more resources, then they can spread on their genes more, anything that makes them more successful. It's also important to realize that there are some conditions where there are evolution that is not just because of it's because of a form of natural selection, but it's not just in response to evolutionary pressure. So if we look at the fauna and flora of almost any island, we see what we call genetic drift because there is often a bottleneck effect. So if you have a population of 100 individuals with randomly dispersed traits, if you take 10 individuals, they may be a random selection or they could be a population that were clustering because they were kin, for example. If you take them and you put them on your island, you have reduced the genetic diversity. And that means you've almost certainly lost some of the traits. We call that a genetic bottleneck because you've reduced the amount of genetic diversity. And that way, that population may be genetically different because you've lost that variation. This is why island faunas are often very uh, susceptible to invasive species because they've adapted to a community with a lot less evolutionary pressure. And if we look at where things like invasive species come from, they often come from areas with very high diversity where there has been very high selective pressure because 
if they were not able to monopolize that niche, able to access the resources they needed, they would be outcompeted. They wouldn't pass on their genes. They may become locally extinct. So thinking about the amount of selective pressure, i.e. what we need to do to combat all of the pressures around us to access the resources we need to survive is what is important to understand in the context of natural selection. Now, the most famous example of this is Darwin's finches. And almost everyone here will have heard of Darwin's finches, how on the Galapagos, he looked at a load of little brown birds and all of them have different beaks because all of them had adapted to use different resources in the environment. They'd adapted to use different diets. Now, what's also important to know is um, we often think about sympatric evolution, allopatric evolution. Now, sympatric is much rarer. It means within a population. For that to happen, we need to have very strong what's called disruptive selection, i.e., Two phenotypes are really good at monopolizing food. So you might have a really thick beak that's good at cracking nuts. You might have a really thin beak that's good at getting into cracks and getting seeds. So each of those phenotypes is really good and successful. But if you have an intermediate phenotype, it means that you're not good at getting your beak into little gaps, but you're also not strong enough to crush seeds. So sympatric selection is much rarer because it means that those who have that intermediate trait have much lower fitness. There is also still likely to be at least some level of gene flow between the two traits. So there are examples, but they are very rare. Normally, when we look at them in detail, and another example would be something like the Lake Tanganyika cichlid fish, you'll see that actually there is a stratification in terms of the depths that they are at. And so um, allopatric selection isn't just two places that are far away. It may even just be using different strata within the same environments so that they don't mix. Allopatric means another. So if you have a population and because of something like an ice age, they get split into two and they're either side of a mountain range, either they may adapt to different selective conditions. So maybe one side is colder than the other. And so they need to utilize different food and that may cause differences to evolve. Now, when those two populations come together, they may be able to still breed, but in some species we'll have what's called a pre-mating barrier. That means that either they don't recognize each other as being the same species, or there is something literally mechanical that stops them breeding or that makes the offspring inviable. So there are all of these different components to evolution that enable species to make the best use of resources. Actually, speciation is a really complex process because everyone thinks they know what species are. But there are a lot of different species complexes out there. And even though the purest form of a species is we said, well, they couldn't interbreed. Or if they could interbreed, then their offspring were not viable. And that means they're not able to produce offspring of their own. Actually, that it's not that black and white. But the reality is that most species will not interbreed under the majority of conditions because those populations would not encounter each other or they would only breed at a very low level. And we know that in some species, there are what we call these hybrid zones, where you have a small area where two populations meet and interbreed. Great example of that is with the two gibbon species that occur in Borneo. And I had the uh, good fortune a few years ago to go to the hybrid zone between those two species. Apparently, you can actually tell how hybridized they are by their call, because each species of gibbon has its own specific call. And they would normally use that to find a mate. But these hybrid populations also have this hybrid core between the two species. But 
they have not spread that range further because outside the hybrid zone, there are certain factors that mean one or the other has an evolutionary favorable set of conditions. And so whilst you have a small hybrid zone, in the rest of those species ranges, there are not hybrids and the hybrid has not spread to other areas because those traits are less favorable. So understanding the intermixture of these different types of dynamics and how complex evolution is, is really important. Yeah, that's, that's uh, so impressive. I mean, basically, I think that you've, you've already opened all the, the branches that, uh, or all the points that we are going to discuss today. Um, uh, I think to 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 start with, uh, we can, and then why it is so difficult to understand evolution is because of the timeline of evolution. So, uh, what do you think? What is the time scale of evolution? Why uh, human minds are? Uh, it, it seems like handicapped that we we are not able to you know understand that how uh, the this these time scales they work. Well, it depends on the generation length. So if you're something that reproduces really fast, evolution can actually happen fairly quickly, especially we can think about artificial selection in that context. So artificial selection is basically applying a higher than natural set of selective conditions to speed up the process of evolution because you are selecting for a set of traits. But instead of it happening, nat happening naturally and having a relatively low amount of environmental pressure, you are literally getting rid of anything that doesn't conform to the set of traits you like. Um, typically, if something has a low, slow generation length, in natural terms, it would likely take millions of years for differences to accrue. Now, this varies. Um, for example, in the bats, we are starting to see what we think is a pre-mating barrier that evolves fairly quickly, that of the uh, echolocation core. So anything that forms an echolocation, uh, a pre-mating barrier would prevent gene flow. And that is the first step in the evolutionary chain. Because if you stop having gene flow, even because of just natural drift, those populations are going to get progressively different. Typically, we'll characterize species of being different when there are several million years of evolutionary difference between them. So it's a long time. But again, this is something that's subject to debate. Because if something has a very short generation length, you have many more generations for those differences to accrue over. So let's say we had an evolutionary selective pressure to a new food type, and that gave us some kind of different ability. If it required something like longer fingers or something because you were trying to grip it, what you might find is if that trait is favorable, there is going to be a slight progression of it each generation, which may lead to this disruptive pressure. Um, and as I said earlier, artificial selection is a really good example of this. If we think about the native dog or any form of livestock, there are hundreds of varieties that show slight differences. Now, these are varieties. They are not species. Most of them can still breed, though in some cases, the offspring will not have favorable traits because especially in many of these highly selected breeds, we call them overbred. If you look at things like dog breeds, most um, sets of breed standards like the Kennel Club in the UK will now have a list of traits that they do not allow because the trait became so exaggerated, it was actually harmful to the animals that had that trait. Things like hip dysplasia or ingrowing eyelashes, et cetera, all of these harmful traits. And this is basically the product of 
over selection. So you've narrowed down the gene pool so much, you've actually selected for some fairly deleterious traits. Another interesting example there, especially in the context of overselection and uh, artificial selection, is something that we call lethal genes. So there are many genes that if one individual has just one copy, it's a dominant gene, they will carry a trait, but it is not fatal. However, if both parents have it and they both pass that gene on to their offspring, it is a fatal trait. And this is why we see, for example, some of these recessive traits. Royal hemophilia is a good example. You need two copies for the offspring to show it, and that was hemophilia. However, lethal traits are interesting because if you have two copies, you're dead. The offspring isn't viable. And I mean, I personally, I have a lethal trait, but I only have one copy. I have extra bits of bone. It's called um, multiple hereditary osteochondriosis. So I have extra bits of bone around most of my joints. If I had children with someone else in, with that condition, one in four of those children would die because if you have two copies of the gene, it's lethal. And if you have small populations, you can get these kinds of genes becoming more abundant, and that means they would have a higher fatality rate. Yeah. Uh, so since you since you started with uh, uh, genetics and talking about gene, of course, um, and then when we are talking about evolution, it is important that the um, as you as you mentioned that the uh, the uh, one uh, like the parents they, they they transfer their genes to the next generation means it should be hereditary the the, the properties that they have um, so let's talk about uh, the uh, what is genetics what is a gene and the role of uh, this gene transfer from one generation to the next generation okay so every cell in our body has a nucleus and inside that nucleus we have are chromosomes. Uh, in the case of humans, there's 24 sets of chromosomes, uh, males and females being differentiated by females being XX, males typically being uh, XY. The Y chromosome is pretty useless. It doesn't contain much genetic information. Interestingly, it's also why men are much more susceptible to a whole load of conditions that are rare in women because they are carried on what we call the sex chromosomes. So women, if they have one copy, well, they still have their other X chromosome, which hopefully has a copy without mutations. With males, because they have just one copy of X, if their gene on that X chromosome is faulty, it's not there on the Y chromosome. And so many genetic conditions are more common in men because of that. Now, a gene is basically one set of blueprints, one recipe for producing proteins for something going on in our body. The thing is that whilst most of those are, all of them are necessary for our everyday lives, mutations in certain genes can have consequences. One really nice example I like to talk about is in language evolution. So language evolution is massively complex, but also really, really interesting. And now I'll go back to the bats for a second because they're a really interesting example of this. So within echolocation, there are two genes that are very, very important. There is the Preston gene and FOXP2 gene. The Preston gene is what's involved in basically high frequency call production. So it's not just in the bats, it's also very important in all of the cetaceans, so the dolphins and the bottlenose dolphins. But if we make a genetic tree out of the Preston gene, 
you'll find that the dolphins get nestled between different groups of bats. So their gene has been so highly selected for, and this is very interesting for biochemical reasons, that it's actually more like bats than it is to other dolphins and whales, which is why using one gene for phylogenies is not good. Now, the reason that's particularly interesting is a protein is coded for by a gene, but you can have different sets of amino acids forming the um, different sets of genes forming the same amino acids. There is what we call redundancy. So sometimes when you have a mutation in one of the base pairs, it won't actually make a difference. It will still encode the same amino acid and the same protein, but sometimes it doesn't. The other gene I mentioned is FOXP2. Now FOXP2 is what is known as the language gene. In bats, it has undergone this hyper selection because uh, echolocation is basically like super sophisticated language but it's also important in humans. In fact, there are only three genetic differences between our FOXP2 and the FOXP2 in the pygmy chimpanzee, the bonobo. Now, if you look at language teaching in bonobos, they can basically get to the level of a three-year-old child. So they can learn a wide vocabulary. They cannot form complex grammar. In humans, where there is a mutation in the FOXP2 gene, they can learn words, they cannot learn grammar. So even these small differences in important genes can have major consequences. And it also reminds us that as humans, we are very closely related to many other mammals. And so understanding those relationships, especially in things like language genes, because as humans, we often think we're very special for having language. But actually, the genes involved in language production in us are also important in other taxa. And seeing where mutations are can even help us design how we can help people with uh, speech therapy and even highly sophisticated new techniques like CRISPR. Because if we know where the problem is, there is now discussion of how we can use these biomolecular techniques to correct for it. Now, there's a whole load of ethics there that I'm not going to go into now. But by looking at other taxa and understanding what the mechanics of genes are, how they work, we can actually start developing solutions that would help fix problems before they become problems. Though, as I said, the ethics behind that is a very touchy topic and will probably continue to be an issue for the next few decades. So basically, genes are the, the, the agents um, that they accumulate the, those changes over the time, uh, which basically yields to a different function and then maybe like gradually this change becomes or yields to another species. Um, and most and of them would be neutral or negative. Um, a lot of them, they're just going to be minor changes because we've got a lot of cells in our body. But if we think about one example, cancer, it's basically when one gene keeps being overread too many times and so you get the production of too many cells. And we now know that certain genes can be responsible for certain types of cancer. Like the BRCA gene is often an indicator of breast cancer. And some of these types of genes will accrue in certain human populations. It's also why we know that basically having children with close relatives is genetically dangerous because any of those recessive negative genes that if you have one copy of, you're okay. But if you have two copies of, you're in trouble are going to basically get concentrated if you have a very small population interbreeding with each other. And it's why if we look at wild populations of certain animals, if you start seeing higher numbers of albinos or higher levels of menalism, 
These are typically traits of inbreeding because there are a whole lot of negative consequences that go alongside those genes. And it basically means that breeding population size is too small to be viable. So we start to see these negative traits becoming visible. Exactly. And probably that's also one of the important aspects of uh, selection. And when it, we talk about natural selection, how important the variation is that uh, the, we need that sort of variation for, an, for any selection to work, uh, basically. And there needs to be selective pressure. What we see in some ecosystems now is they've been so modified that many of the natural factors have been replaced by unnatural factors. So you may have a small population of, say, a lemur species in a reserve. Now, under natural selection, some of them would not be fit enough to reproduce, but they're being fed into the reserve, and there are some factors there. There was a certain tree, for example, in Berenti Reserve in Madagascar, where there were high, high levels of melanistic lemurs. And they were showing clear signs of basically inbreeding, reacting to natural conditions, but they were being artificially supported which meant that those genes were becoming more prevalent in that small population. Yeah, and um, I mean, I think that that is also true for pandas. Uh, but apart from that, the, um, the, I think it's also uh, interesting to pandas think about- are strange species. Yes. I mean, there are species which is typically very unwilling to breed. Most species don't survive if they don't breed. So the panda is kind of an evolutionary anomaly. And if you talk to panda researchers, they say, oh, no, the conditions have just changed a lot. But it takes a lot to make those males and females pair. And that is not something that is favored by evolution, typically. <laughs> yeah, uh, panda, pandas can be, you know, that the evolutionary monks, that they, <laughs> they, they, <laughs> they probably think that maybe it's, uh, it's not good to do it. Um, well, it, they're interesting. If you look at the panda fossil record, there were more panda species. Maybe the reason that other species went extinct was not just loss of range. It was the fact that populations may have been small and they just weren't very good at breeding. Being able to breed is important for evolution. If you can't, then that's an evolutionary dead end. And maybe that's also uh, one example for the, uh, for the students of evolution that the... Uh, why, why it is important to breed simply the, to make a copies and... Uh... Well, it's important to think in the context of evolution. Where we see species are, often you'll hear about things like uh, ecological niche modeling. And we tend to think about spe where species are as the areas that are suitable to them. But that is only one part of why they are where they are. They need to be in areas where they are able to survive and breed and that has a whole slew of other conditions. For example, if they are a social species, they need to have a population size that is big enough to, for it to be to remain viable, to not show inbreeding depression. But it also has to be in an area where they are able to have reached since the last glacial maximum. Many species had a small glacial refugial population. They may still be spreading, or the range may be fragmented. So there are all of these different factors that uh, actually indicates their viability today as well as their modern day distribution. And it's the reflection not only of where they are now, but those past evolutionary pressures which may have limited them to a subset of suitable areas during the, the biogeographic history of the species. Indeed. And when we talk about humans, that they have somehow overcome 
those pressures and spread around all the globe. Um, maybe we can we can also talk about um, how that evolution would work, like how we get a species itself means, let's say, if we uh, start talking about in our uh, ancestral history, um, and you know, of course, they'll they'll be our cousins, the other Homo uh, species. But then, at some point, we will meet an ancestor which is common between us, chimpanzees and bonobos. So, so how do we how do we get that? So the human evolutionary tree is something we're still learning a lot about. There are certain hominid ancestors that we only know from, say, the digit of a finger found in a cave in the middle of Borneo. There are species like the Denisovans, which were an early hominid, which we know from genetic evidence, but we don't have many examples of. We also know that we as Homo sapiens did interbreed with uh, the Neanderthals. We probably interbred with other ones like Homo erectus. So many of these early hominids actually coexisted. And we know now that the Neanderthals, which had bigger craniums, so they may have required more resources because our brains are expensive. That's where most of our heat and our energy goes. And it's why compared to another mammal of the same size, we probably have a bigger calorific consumption. Now. Homo sapiens and Homo neanderthalensis did coexist and they did breed, but Homo sapiens became the dominant species. We do not know all the factors behind that. If we look at the evolution, the out of Africa hypothesis, et cetera, Homo sapiens left Africa several times. We also met some of our other hominid ancestors in their evolutionary migration across the planet. If we think about when humans became a big part of the planet, though, there is um, a concept called the Anthropocene. Now, there are many discussions of when the Anthropocene started. There are many proponents who say it should have started around the 1950s, where we had an increase in basically the emission of all of the industrial gases. But also, if you look at the last 100 years, global human populations have increased exponentially in the last 100 years. So before that, there were still huge parts of the planet where you had extensive rainforest, et cetera. It is only in the last few decades that we've actually taken over most of the planet's surface. And now if you dig into the soil in the Amazon rainforest, you will find plastic. We have left this footprint all over the planet. Now, what has allowed humans to become so successful? I mean, we're basically a, a virus of the planet. We've infected every part of it and changed it. Yeah, you can tell I don't like humans very much. Um, the ability to make use and take advantage of natural resources and to modify a system to provide what we need is literally exactly what a virus does. So this is what we have done to the entire surface of the planet. We have modified it so we can access the commodities that we actually need as a species. And we've done that very well. There are other species that have also taken advantage of this. So the rats are a good example. Rats are very good at moving with human populations. And because we are a wasteful species, making use of the stuff that we waste. And they are good at living in these modified environments. So there are a selection of species that are known as super tramps, because wherever humans go, they can basically go to. They have very generalist conditions. They're able to adapt to be able to eat a huge array of different foods adapt to be able to roost or sleep in very different conditions. And so they've been able to make use of humans to go across the rest of the planet. 
interesting and uh, since we were talking about uh, feeding uh, the other animals and you know then making that artificial environment around them and that's how they are able to breed uh, i think the same thing also goes for humans right that the um uh, there are uh, uh, th there would be people that they may not have that good gene pool but just because now we have enough resources they are able to breed and breed like really in uh, huge numbers it's and always a challenging topic to talk about but of course i mean i i was born in the 1980s and talking to my parents that was still a time where a lot of women were having births at home and if the baby was born and the child did not look like it was going to cope well often the midwife would just leave the baby to one side and the baby would quietly die whilst the midwife was attending to the mother because they knew that being that resources were short and you still had high child mortality during that time, that offspring would not be able to contribute to the survival of the family. They wouldn't be able to help out on the farm, for example. In human populations, this is still common in some parts of the planet where the person helping women give birth will make the assessment that child is never going to thrive without help. And in this area, we don't have resources to support those who cannot contribute. Now, most human societies now, they don't like accepting that as a reality. But until recently, we did not have the luxury to support those who could not support themselves, simply because if I can only access enough resources for me to survive, I can't actually provide enough resources for someone who can't. But with the production of more resources, with greater mechanization, with fertilizers, et cetera, we can now shorten the working time. We can automate more to produce our food. And that means that, yeah, we can give a quality of life to those who before would not have survived. And even for those with things like locked-in syndrome now, we can have things that can actually interpret what they are saying when they cannot physically do anything for themselves. Now, again, then you go down into the moral arguments, which are still very contentious. But evolutionarily, if you read through the origin of species, there are examples of when uh, Charles Darwin talked to Inuits and they said, our dogs are our most important commodity because they help us hunt. If we run out of food, if we hit a time of food scarcity, we will eat our grandmothers before we eat our dogs because they didn't want to eat their grandmothers, but they needed their dogs to survive. And their grandmothers wanted their offspring to survive. And so even though in terms of the way human families, et cetera, evolve now, that is not an acceptable thing, but it is often a question of survival. And so if you had a society that said, oh, we're not going to do that, we, we would just hope that there will be food. That population would die out because they would not have enough food to survive. And so there is also, um, social examples of evolution, because of course, the way we are socially, our preferences as human beings, even what we are attracted to, is all a product of evolution. And if we look at even trends in human society, many of the things that we are attracted to, even things like religious constraints, they're all the product of evolution, even though we often don't like to acknowledge that. Yeah, indeed. Um... I mean, of course, we have enough resources now, but then uh, that's also, and when we are talking about morality and uh, other, um, our 
uh, sort of uh, our duties to the society. Um, of course, there is also this um, moral judgment that even even if we have resources, we should limit the number of children that we are producing, so that at least in the society that we have that conscious uh, decision that humanity survives all in all. Um, and since you uh, mentioned about the religion um, aspect, like how religion evolves, um, of course, which is when it comes to evolution of religion, it's it's fairly recent. Uh, it's but quite recent. There are some interesting evolutionary elements in there. So if you think of almost every religion that is in a tropical zone, there are foods they will not eat, typically yeah. pork. Now, in terms of disease risk and lack of refrigeration, there is a higher risk from getting diseases from pork than pretty much any other meat. So the reason that populations in tropical areas do not eat pork is because those that said, oh, it's unclean, we're not going to eat it, were the ones that were least likely to get a disease from it. So these social constraints are actually a quicker version of evolution because those that are performing that behavior are more likely to survive. And then others will say, well, you survived. You must be doing the right thing. So just like selecting for a gene, selecting for a behavior can be the product of social evolution. And religion comes into that. Uh, another interesting example. So I'm from the UK. And as you can tell, I am very white. Um, now, my grandmother's evolution she would put white paints on her face because she grew up in a um, generation where if you had darker skin, it was associated with working in the fields. And so if you were able to afford not to go and get a suntan, you must be rich. And so it's good to show that you are rich enough to not have to work in a field. But the next generation came along, the invention of air travel came along. Suddenly, white didn't mean you were working in the, not working in the field it meant you couldn't afford to go on holiday. And so then people started to want to be tanned in these areas where naturally you would be as white as a painted wall. Um, and so people started to go out and get tanned to show that they could afford to go on holiday. Um, and then you have cheats, which said, well, I can't afford to go on holiday, but I can afford the sunbed. Um, and again, just like evolutionary cheating that we see in so many species, these forms of social cue are all evolutionary. They are all signaling status. It's the same reason that on Pacific Islands, often people are attracted to fat women because it means that they can actually access resources to survive, including in times of scarcity or drought. So your chance of having viable offspring is higher. So even all of those preferences have an evolutionary basis. And whereas genetic evolution is slow, Social evolution, fashion, etc., are all based on the same mechanisms and can be exponentially faster. Yeah, fascinating. So uh, here, I mean, basically, we are distinguishing two mechanisms. One is based on genes. The other one is based on memes. Uh, the, the term coined exactly. by Dawkins. Um, but then, one of the meme is, of course, religion. And which poses the the counter argument uh, for evolution, which is intelligent design. So, what is an intelligent design, and uh, does it really make sense? So, the typical argument about uh, intelligent design, something like the human eye. So, many people would argue that 
something as complex as the human eye would have to have evolved together because it's so complex. There are so many elements that rely on each other. And how could those have all evolved sequentially as uh, natural selection would require? But the reality is, even if you look at the uceli on the forehead of a cricket, there are primitive types of eyes that would just react to light. And actually, small modifications in the eye still have um, functions. They still confer advantages. But also, conversely, the eye is costly. These things are complex. And so if you look at subterranean species or species that live in caves in the deep sea, often they no longer have eyes. They have uh, vestigial eyes because um, it's expensive and there's no light there. So there's no value to having an eye in those conditions. Um, so the intelligent design argument is basically anything that is very complex, people say is too complex to have evolved through the slow iterative process. But what we know and what we know from looking at the fossil record is actually these kinds of things are a suite of genes that can evolve sequentially, so vision improves. Also, the eye is another interesting example of differences between males and females, because we now know that both in terms of social evolution and actual genetic evolution, women may have a higher sensitivity to more types of color and have more color chromosomes in the eye, because again, they are on the X and Y chromosomes. Now, in tamarins, which are small primate species found in Latin America, we know that the females can see all colors. And basically, males will have combinations of two different rather than the three. In humans, we are starting to realize that females have slightly different color vision to males because of the same thing. And it's also why men are more likely to be colorblind. So about 10% of men are colorblind. Rare in females because these are on the sex chromosomes but women may be able to see more colors as a consequence. Um, so there are all of these complex things and things that we are only just starting to understand. Before we move on to the next topic, this is also a really good example of why women need to be part of trials. So what we know about the human eye was largely based on studies on men. We are now starting to realize many more differences between males and females because women were not included in the study. And because there are differences on X and Y, there are actually even differences inside our eyes, which change the way we view the world, as well as social constructs. So in studies, it shows that women are, for example, better at differentiating blue and green. Men are better at seeing things that move fast. We think that this is because in our human ancestors, men were selected to be able to go and hunt. So they need to be able to see that quick thing moving and hunt it whereas females may be collecting things to eat as in uh, gathering berries, et cetera. So they need to see the subtle color differences that means something is ripe or edible, poisonous. And so all of these different things feed into evolution and are part of our daily lives without us realizing it. Right. So um, as, as you mentioned, that the, we've, we've just started to uh, sort of... Uh, find out these different uh, explanations of evolution. So then again, one another aspect is that what is the proof of evolution? Like what are the different ways, uh, how we understand evolution so far? Uh, and what are the different fields or methods that uh, which they come together now in this, uh, especially in the modern times and we understand more about evolution? So evolution is part of everything. It's part of the way we operate in our daily lives. We are starting to realize we can reconstruct human migrations by looking at language evolution. So 
again, if we look at langu Aboriginal languages, for example, those shared words and the degree of shared words can help us trace where that population moved. Language evolution is also important. If we look at uh, cultures that would have exchanged certain goods, you will find that in significant words, they are more likely to share them because there has been a pressure for them to communicate among those key themes. In terms of what we're attracted to, we now even know that humans will be attracted to people by smell because actually it means that they are subconsciously sensing people with their complementary antibody systems and immunity. So everything we do, everything we are attracted to is about our survival. And even if we look at the exaggerated traits humans are now selecting for, most of them link back to evolution and things that would have helped us be fitter. So we might think we're autonomous and free thinking, but we're all the product of evolution. And almost everything we do is based on selection, some of which is not that good. Even if we look at our obsession with sugar and sweet things and unhealthy things, that's because our early human ancestors needed to get things with high energy because they didn't want to starve. Now, the consequence of that in modern society where resources are abundant are obesity and heart disease. Um, another thing that is rife in humans is there are many diseases of old age because we didn't evolve to live this long. We're not even good at being bipedal. If you look at the structure of the human body, it's a really good example of why it's not intelligent design. Almost everyone listening will have backache because the way we are designed does not support the lumbar region of our spine. We're really bad at bi being bipeds. But these things have evolved iteratively, subject to a multitude of different pressures. And when we look at what we eat, how that's selected for, almost everything we do is the product of some form of natural selection. We're just not very aware of it. And we like to think that as humans, we're better than that, but we're not. Yeah, impressive. Um, then there is also uh, one key aspect of evolution, which is reproduction. And of course, we have two different mechanisms to do it. Uh, of course, there are they can be more in the lower organisms, uh, but two major are sexual reproduction, which is what uh, I think almost all the animals they they do, um, and also again, the it's an interesting one. We're starting to realize that there are a lot more species capable of what we call parthenogenesis than we thought. So a like, lot of invertebrates can reproduce clonally, so can some plants. Some plants can self-fertilize. There are a whole suite of different conditions. Um, it's a very complex topic. And whereas humans are X, uh, XX and XY for male and female, this is not the same system in a host of other species. So for some species like various reptiles, they don't have sex chromosomes. Their sex is dependent on the temperature of the egg. And depending on that temperature, they will be a different sex. If it is too high, they may be sterile. And this is why some species of reptile are particularly vulnerable to climate change. Because if it gets too hot, literally the eggs will all be one sex or they won't hatch. In birds, it's a different system. It's a different system in insects. So whereas in humans, there are typically two sexes, though there are some um, examples where that is not the case. In many other species, this isn't the case. And in things like fish, there are even species that can switch sex. Um, so it's a pretty complex topic. Yeah, there are literal hermaphrodites. There are some species that will also have one form of female and several forms of male. 
one of them will be smaller and will be the one that sneaks in and then squirts their semen over the fish's eggs while she thinks that she's uh, releasing them with another male. So it's a very complex topic area, one that not many people think about. What's interesting, though, is that sexual selection often um, has a whole suite of other forms of adaptation and selection for it. So in males, males typically are the ones that are attracting females because if you were a female, you have one egg and it's expensive. It requires a lot of resources and hundreds of times more resources than a sperm. And if you are going to get pregnant, you can only produce a small number of offspring. So you're going to be picky about choosing the fittest male. One way to show that you're choosing a fit male is a male that can basically spend a lot of energy. So things like a peacock's tail. They make you more vulnerable to predators that require a lot of resources to produce. But if you have a big tail, it means that actually you're good at accessing resources because you didn't get killed by a tiger. So we have often a suite of these um, exaggerated traits that show, hey, I survived when I have this thing to deal with. I'm a, I'm a good prospect. Um, I have good genes. They let me survive. And that makes them attractive. In others, they will often be the production of scarce resources. So on a mandrel's face, you'll see blue and red. Same on their backside. Those are typically carotenoid colors, which are basically rare resources. They're basically being produced to say, hey, I have enough resources to produce this. So I'm a good investment. And so again, these forms of adaptation, which also translate into modern humans wanting the guy with the biggest, the most expensive car, are all based on these evolutionary selection that, yeah, you're worth me investing my big egg in because my offspring are likely to have the greatest chance to reproduce and produce offspring. Hey, we're just another species. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that that's for sure uh, an, an interesting aspect of evolution that how uh, selection works uh, when, when it comes to different phenotypes. Um, but then there is one more phenotype, which is um, altruism, being good to the to the other member of our species. How uh, something like that, you know, that complex behavior may evolve. So altruism is a contentious trait. There is not example of examples of it in many species. One example that is often given is in vampire bats. So being a bat. We go back to that. Being a bat is tough. It takes a lot of energy every night. So if one vampire bat does not find a nice chicken to drink blood from or a cow, which is typically what they feed from, because they need that energy, they may die in the next 24 hours if they can't feed. And they're only feeding at night. So they go back to the roost and they squeak to other individuals and another individual will regurgitate a meal for it. Now, the cost to the individual giving the meal is relatively low because they don't give enough, a lot just enough for that other individual to survive. And it is known that it is not kin doing this to kin. So they may never get the favor back. They've shared their food. They may never get repaid it. We do not see examples of this in many species. Normally, when we see what is seen as being doing a favor, you're actually doing it to kin or you're doing it to your social group so it does directly benefit you. There are very few examples of true altruism in the natural world. Most of it is linked up with furthering the propagation of my genes, because ultimately the genes are selfish. That's where it comes from. And the selfish genes want to be propagated, so they lead to selfish individuals. But 
if a behavior is too selfish and destructive when you are especially in a complex social group, then it is not going to be favored in the long term. If you have highly variable conditions and every individual tries to keep resources, then those individuals that are very selfish, if they don't have enough, there are not other individuals to share for them. And so it will be selected against. In conditions like that, where you need to share some level of resources, you need to have these more cooperative behaviors. And it's the same as we see in various bird species where there are scant resources. So often the offspring from the year before will help raise the next brood. They are still genetically related to them, even though it may be less than with their own offspring in some conditions. Um, but by helping their parents rear their offspring, there is a higher chance of those offspring's survival. So it is still beneficial to them given that their own offspring may not survive. So altruism is complex, but it's also on this gradient. And a lot of it comes down to the survival of your genes into the future, with only a few exceptions outside that when we really look at it. Yeah, and um, I think when, when it comes to the survival of the genes, uh, two properties are really uh, uh, puzzling. One is adoption. Uh, why species they adopt and the other is um, homosexuality that why you uh, or like uh, being a monk or you know uh, uh, being a priest that you don't want to reproduce uh, which is basically uh, or what we were talking about pandas that the they don't want to reproduce you know so what yeah. <laughs> uh, why these so kind of traits may evolve if you look at a lot of traditional societies and even indigenous communities they would often have multiple genders now, sex and gender are not the same thing. Um, there are normally two biological sexes. There are only a few people who are intersex or have three sex chromosomes. But there are a spectrum of different genders. Um, and some of those would normally be non-reproductive. And in even those ancient societies, you will find different words used for them. The purpose is likely to be that you want to have a proportion that are helping the community that are more cooperative, that are involved in childcare. And if you had these bigger family units, again, it can be another mechanism to promote cooperation. Because for example, if you have a very aggressive society where the males may not be particularly loyal to females, if they have a brother that is homosexual, but is there to protect them because they are stronger, it means that they are likely to have higher reproductive fitness because, again, they, they can access more resources, they can gain more protection. And so in certain societies, these kinds of traits might be favored. And this is seen in other taxa as well. Also, if we look at species like dolphins, so within dolphins, homosexuality is known. But there are so many uh, social constructs around uh, intercourse, etc. Um, many of those are because of how modern society has evolved. And species like chimpanzees and other intelligent species like dolphins, it is just another way of basically bonding with individuals. And so there is a much less loaded conception of how these things work. So if we think about it as another mechanism to promote cooperation and bonding, it makes a lot of sense, especially if there are scant resources or if say you're in a society that is vulnerable to attack, the females may not want to go out and forage. But if they have a sibling that is not going out to do attacking, but can help them gain resources, they're going to survive. 
So there's a lot of these social elements that would favor the evolve, evolution of such strategies. Interesting. So, um, so basically, uh, homosexuals, we can see uh, this trait as in uh, social bonding, which would, and especially in, in, in the case of many social animals, it will be uh, uh, quite important. In, in it that it can help build cooperation, etc. But it's also not a new thing. It is something that has existed in a lot of species at a low level. Now, obviously, it's never going to be selected for in a high number because you need to have reproductive individuals. But selecting for a low level of a trait that assists others in that community is likely to be favorable. And so the species you see it in are often species where there might be conflict, et cetera. And so it can have these evolutionary positives. Yes. And what about adoption? What do you think about adoption? Adoption is another interesting one. Um, so there are certain circumstances under which it would evolve. One of them would be having uh, either a rather short reproductive lifespan. And so it's not high cost to you to rearing it. Um, but that offspring may be able to then protect your family and bring back resources. So if your own offspring has died, then taking in another offspring, if the cost is not too high and resources are available, may mean that if resources become more scarce later, you have another individual that can help you monopolize those resources. So again, in these kinds of communities or societies where you have different levels of pressure, when times are good, you can invest, even if that's not your own offspring, but they may help you bring back resources when times are less good. So there are situations like that under which it would be favored. The converse in a way of adoption is when you have um, things like nest parasitism. So when you have a species like the cuckoo that is like, I don't want to invest in rearing young, you can rear my young. And then they will go and parasitize the nest of reed buntings or something. Um, and so that's a really interesting example of evolution, because obviously the bird who's had their nest parasitized doesn't want to rear someone else's chick. If they identify it at the beginning of the season, they can kick out the egg and they can lay more eggs. So the way that different traits have evolved to help them recognize that isn't my egg are really interesting. In a lot of Eurasian cuckoos, things like the color or the spot patterning typically is very close between that species of cuckoo and the birds it normally lays its eggs in the nest of. But in Australia, it's the color of the chick and the color of the fluff tufts on the heads of the chick that get selected for, because the parents are using different cues to try and say, you're not my baby, I'm not investing in you, I still have time to have my own. So often in evolution, there are these evolutionary arms race is between me and the rest of the world. And particularly if you look at things like predator and prey or parasites and uh, those that are parasitoids, and especially in things like nest parasites, there are some really interesting examples of co-evolution where one is trying to reduce the pressure, but the other is also trying to pass on its genes. That's just fascinating. And uh, thinking about and talking about evolution, we can see that how many different um, uh, 
traits that we can try to understand how much we can understand about human behavior itself about our social behavior and why we uh, do certain things the way we do uh, why not the other way around and what are the things that we are lacking i mean how many examples there uh, are there in the nature that uh, which which certainly i mean uh, you 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 mentioned about uh, uh, bats about dolphins that the 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 sort of traits that they have which we are still trying to acquire somehow um the last week i was attending a seminar um about uh, longevity in humans and the speaker was talking about uh, naked mole rats that they can live uh till uh, up to 37 years or something uh, so so how many different examples are there which can really improve uh, humanity and uh, really help us to to understand more about uh, humans itself um but then why still people are reluctant to understand evolution or they are not able to understand evolution what do you think what what could be those factors or they just don't, don't want to understand evolution <laughs> well i mean i think the first thing that people need to realize is e- evolution has been and always will be part of our lives and why we do what we do most of the ways we have developed to have preferences are based on evolutionarily favorable uh, reasons many religions will want to question evolution because it is something that may make people question their own existence now people like to think and conceptualize the world in a way that makes sense to them for those especially for those who have grown up in religious frameworks often they may be fairly unwilling to want to accept especially if they come from a creationist religion they don't want to accept this parallel way of being that doesn't have a nice easy beginning at the end because even in the context of science we still do not know how this earth how life got to earth now okay you can go down to the opera and haldin hypothesis etc there's still a lot to know there and a lot we will probably never know those who have these religious constructs who like the idea of people being placed having a reason having that safety net may not want to accept the fact that we all evolved and yes we are related to a bat we are related to a naked mole rat and we're even distantly related to an amoeba once upon a time um evolution is something that is fascinatingly intricate if people want to have some little insights into it The book by Dawkins on the ancestors tale is one of the most accessible books I know about detailing our journey as humans through evolution and those of our ancestors. But it's something that is a fascinating story and if you look at it at any scale even human evolution, hominid evolution, it's part of who we are and it's something that everyone should try to understand more because whether you want better medicines, better food, or just a more comfortable life evolution and natural selection are a part of that absolutely and so at the end what what uh, is the other material that you would recommend uh, uh, for the people who are either uh, starting now to reading about evolution or even people who know but maybe still don't understand evolution so um i think in terms of popular popular science uh, the ancestors tale is one of the most accessible So as some of the Orkin's earlier books Stephen Pinker also has some fantastic very readable science books on it but there is a wealth of material out there and it depends what you're interested in the evolution and natural selection of because it's a vast topic but read things that are accessible to start with because 
having that grounding enables you to ask the right questions, go off on all sorts of interesting evolutionary branches. And it's a big tree. Exactly. Okay, so with that, I, I should thank you for uh, discussing all these uh, crucial, important topics. Uh, it's, it's really fascinating. And uh, the different explanations, the different uh, examples that you uh, brought today, I think it'll surely help people that who, who want to understand evolution. Most welcome. It's been a pleasure. And if people have questions, they're welcome to get in contact. Sure. Thank you so much. Most welcome.